You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum, and I'm delighted to see all of you here this afternoon. It's a great turnout on, on really a very, very nice day. So welcome to the museum. I would uh, ask you, out of kindness to the speaker, to please turn off your uh, PDAs, cell phones, any other electronic gear you're working. Sometimes interferes with the, uh, with the system. I'm very pleased today to introduce uh, Christina Shelton. Uh, she has written a book that I think is a, a fitting book in our time. It's a very straightforward account of a man by the name of Alger Hiss. And throughout my career in intelligence and in public life, a sort of secretive form of public life, the name Alger Hiss was a shibboleth. All you had to do was raise Alger Hiss at a dinner party, and you had a good chance, number one, of spoiling the dinner party, depending on who you were with, but at least raising arguments, loud and continuous. So I'm hoping that Christina Shelton's book will be one of those books that helps put an end to loud and raucous dinner parties. Uh, Christina Shelton's background was she worked for a number of think tanks and then was in the intelligence community for some 20 years. And she worked at both, uh, primarily at DIA, but had details to CIA and the FBI and the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, retiring in 2006. And this is her first book. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say I was certainly very impressed with it, and I look forward to a very interesting interview. Uh, we're doing this in an unusual way today, and I think it'll be very interesting for you all. She will be interviewed by Dr. Mark Stout, who is our museum historian with his own background in intelligence. He has worked in the State Department's INR as well as in CIA. So you have two professionals discussing what has been one of America's most fascinating cases. So please help me welcome Christina Shelton and Mark Stout. settled here? Yep. Okay. Mike should be on. Are you on? Hello. Okay. <laughs> Can you hear me? All right. 
Um, well, let me also welcome you to the International Spine Museum. I think it's a it's a terrific book with a great title as well, which we'll we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, but can you just start by saying? I mean, Peter was talking about how uh, Hiss is sort of a was a, a shibboleth. I think was the twenty five cent word that he pulled out. Could you just give us a little background on, on who was this man, Alger Hiss? Alger Hiss was a senior diplomat at the State Department during the nineteen forties. And he was exposed by Whitaker Chambers, Time Magazine editor, as being a member of the Communist Party and involved in espionage. And at that time, he was a high-level official, so the case between the two men became headline news for several years. But going back a little, I would say that Alger Hiss came from a middle-class Baltimore family, and he spent his years growing up in school, especially at Johns Hopkins, Harvard Law School, and clerking for Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, he spent that time networking and developing this persona of Upper Eastern Establishment and a patrician of that group. And he finally became accepted by them as one of their own, and he became their fair-haired boy, even though he originally was not in that class. He spent the first few years of the the Great Depression in the 30s as a, an attorney at very prestigious law firms in Boston and New York. And it was during this time that he started to become radicalized. And in 1933, he moved down to Washington, D.C. to work for FDR and the New Deal. In 1936, he got his first job at the State Department and spent 10 years there becoming a high-level official and FDR's representative at Yalta and a founder of the United Nations. He, the spying took place from 34 to sometime during the middle of World War II. And after the case in the 40s when he was convicted of perjury related to espionage, the statute of limitations had run out on espionage, so he was convicted perjury in a second trial. The first was a hung jury. And then he spent 44 months at Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, and when he came out, he spent the next close to half a century, he died rather late in 1996 at 92 years old, he spent the entire time trying to vindicate himself. And he died claiming he was innocent. So Hiss began spying in 34, you say, uh, and he was spying, as I understand it, for the GRU, which was Soviet military right. intelligence, not the NKVD, the predecessor to the KGB. The GRU, Soviet military intelligence, had recruited him when he moved to Washington, D.C. He joined the Ware Group in 1934. That was an underground cell that worked for Soviet military intelligence. And Whitaker Chambers was the person who was running that cell and Donald Hiss, his brother, and Alger were two of, the, of several people in that group. Well, just very briefly before we move on, um, why did the Soviet military intelligence recruit a diplomat? You would think that they'd be focusing more on you know, military personnel or people who worked in defense industry. Why was, why was he run by the GRU instead of by the, the predecessor to the KGB, or do we know? Yes, at that time in the 30s, actually, the GRU was the premier agency in, in the Soviet Union for foreign intelligence. The, the KGB was not, not as advanced as they were. They had more networks, they were more developed, and they needed to have a lot of State Department type 
classified information to find out, you know, what the plans were for the U.S. during for World War II that they saw on the horizon, you know, what Hitler's plans were, what our plans were. So they wanted to have that information as well as they were the, the front the, uh, spying agency at that time. So the subtitle of your book is Why He Chose Treason. Why did he choose treason? <laughs> Let's just get right to it. Um, well, it, during the Depression, the economic chaos that took place, millions losing their jobs and banks foreclosing, thousands of people embraced communism during that time in this country. They thought that capitalism was dying and that uh, the United States was doomed politically and economically, and they looked towards socialism and Moscow as the avenue to save this country. Al some of them went beyond that, like Alger Hiss and spied for Moscow. And for them, like people like Hiss, they were committed, totally committed communists. They believed in it. They believed it was a utopia, despite the fact that Stalin was killing millions of people. They saw only utopia Hiss did. And to him, from his perspective, he was, he was not committing treason against the United States but going to an ideology that would save the United States. That was his perspective. So you're not saying he did this out of patriotic motives, are you? No. Okay. Well, no. He, he was looking at it from an international perspective. He believed in world peace, international collaboration, social justice, equality. He saw only utopia. He had a blind spot toward the crimes going on in the Soviet Union. I forget who said it, but but uh, one uh, one participant in the Cold War famously noted, as I recall, that the communists had all the good words, like peace and equality. They they were really good at deploying those words. Right. Um, would it be fair to say, though, also per perhaps a little bit in Hiss's defense, that in the twenties and the thirties we didn't know a whole lot about the crimes going on in the Soviet Union and what a thoroughly horrible guy Stalin was. I mean, there was certainly reason to ask that question, but it's not like we understood the, 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 the horribleness of the Soviet Union and of Stalin, say, the way we did after Khrushchev's secret speech that's or correct. In, in subsequent decades. Right, that's correct, especially in the 30s. But as you went into the 40s and after World War II, it became apparent the crimes, especially Stalin's campaign to starve all the thousands of peasants in the Ukraine, all of this became known to the West for those who would acknowledge it. And that's why you had a lot of communists breaking away. Whitaker Chambers broke from the party in 1938 after seeing the evils of Stalin and the Nazi Soviet pact. That early, that, that particular event caused a lot of them to break with the party. Now, his spied for the Soviets, and you talked a good bit that a good bit about that in your book. Do you also think he was an agent of influence for the Soviets, somebody working inside the U.S. government to see that we implemented pro-Soviet policies, or was he just quietly and secretly spying and doing nothing else? What's what's your take on that? Well, my my take is the same take as a former communist. Louis Boudens was the head of the Daily Worker from 1940 to 45, and then he broke with the party. And his position was that the communist conspiracy in the United States was done by two particular types of people, those stealing information spies and agents of influence. And he suggested that sometimes a select comrade would do both. 
well, Hiss was such a select comrade because he was in a position at the State Department to have access to classified material, and which he stole and gave to Whitaker Chambers, who in turn passed it to the GRU, Soviet Military Intelligence. But as important, he was in a position to influence policy that, that, would, that could benefit the Soviet Union and Moscow's goals. He was in a position to influence policy from that post at the State Department and when he was a representative at Yalta, which he did. Tell me a little bit more about what we know about what he was doing at Yalta. Maybe, maybe back up just for a minute and give a couple sentences on the importance of Yalta and then explain perhaps what he was doing at Yalta, why you have these, why you come to the conclusion you do about his role in Yalta. Well, I thought Yalta to me was the most important chapter of the book because I wanted to take this more strategic view of the Hiss case, not just look at the contents between Chambers and Hiss. And Hiss was selected by FDR to go to Yalta, even though at that time he was a mid-level official. He wasn't a high-level official. But he was selected to go. And papers from Secretary of State Stentenius, now available at the University of Virginia, showed that he depended and relied heavily on Hiss for policy uh, background and information. And he was informed, Hiss was informed on every substantive issue discussed at Yalta, not just what his responsibility was, the, the founding of the UN, but on uh, borders of Poland, German reparations, uh, Indochina, the, Ch the Chinese Mao Zedong, Chiang Kai-shek war effort. He was informed on all issues, and Secretary Stentenius, right before they all left to go to Yalta, told his staff that every paper for Roosevelt and all the black books being prepared for Yalta were to be in Hiss's hands two weeks before they left. So he had access to everything, of all the substantive issues, what the United States was willing to do, willing to negotiate, what our position was. The bottom line is most books previously have talked about Hiss's role at Yalta as not very important. He was a note taker. Well, the information suggests otherwise. Most importantly, the foreign relations of the United States, the official document um, on various, well, a whole history of foreign policy. The book on Yalta, it's about a 1,000 pages, I think. You have to know what page to go to to find out the minutes of meetings where Hiss was involved. They're not located, all of them, in the index because and this is from a book inside the State Department by Brighton Barron. He said there was an effort within state to downplay Hiss's role so that you have to go through this entire volume to find out all the meetings he was attending. It wasn't readily indexed to make no, apparent the importance of Hiss's role. Exactly. One of the most engaging parts of your book, I thought, uh, was where you talked about how you met Hiss once. And I had the, had the pleasure of hearing you recount this in, in person in your own voice at lunch yesterday. And I think the audience would be, would be interested to hear about your, your personal brush with Alger Hiss. Well, it was sort of a fluke. I received a call one day in 1979 from a friend saying, how would you like to meet Alger Hiss? I said, what are you talking about? Well, apparently every year a group of left-wing intellectuals in New York City, I was in Washington, D.C. at the time. And you may have been an intellectual, but not left-wing. <laughs> right. Um, they provided um, 
a celebration in his honor at his birthday time. And it was the same group every year, every year. And apparently his told one of the, uh, his hosts that he wanted some diversion. These parties were getting boring. So that word filtered down to somewhere along the line where this friend of mine heard it and called me. And I said, sure, I'll go. So I took the shuttle up the day of the party. And when I arrived at the apartment, I was the first one there. And his walked in like five minutes later. And he came into the living room. And we had about 15 minutes before the guests started arriving. And it was fascinating because we, I was asking him about Whitaker Chambers' book, The Witness. And he said he had never read it. And I kind of reacted like, what do you mean? How is that possible? How could you, how could you say you never read this book? It was very popular, very famous. And it was about you know, the New Deal, not just about his contest, not just about his contest with Alger Hiss. And so he didn't say much to me. And after I st stopped venting, um, the guest started to arrive. And I got up to walk out. And he said, no, I want you to stay. And as every guest came up to him, and I must say they were really fawning over him. It was like they were meeting the Pope. They said, um, he said, I want you, I want to introduce you to Mrs. Shelton. That's all he said, because that's all he knew was my name. And they all gave me this kind of quizzical look like, who the hell is she? <laughs> they knew I was an outsider and not part of that intellectual group in New York. But when I left, you know, he came and saw me to the door. He got my coat. He said, I, wanted, I want you to meet my son, Tony. And he introduced me to Tony. And then I was out of there. And a couple of days later, uh, I heard that he had, you know, he thought it was great. He was very impressed. I don't know why. I still don't know why. But when I was researching this book, I read Tony Hiss's book on Alger Hiss's experience in, in prison for 44 months. And this was just a few years ago. I'm, I'm reading the book in preparation for this. And I'm sitting there, and it said, you know, in 1953 or 54, I forget which, when my father was in prison, uh, he had access to the library. And Saturday Evening Post published Witness in 10 installments. And he read the whole thing and talked about his views on it. So I guess, why did he lie to me? I guess he just didn't want to get involved in discussing witness. It was easier to say than read it. You've mentioned, uh, speaking of witness, you've mentioned Whitaker Chambers several times. Can you tell us a little bit about who he was? And, and in what ways, perhaps, was he different from Alger Hiss? Well, everybody knows the image of Whitaker Chambers, short, frumpy, rumpled, fat. And he was standing next to this good-looking, handsome, uh, intellectual, Ivy League, Harvard graduate, and they immediately drew their impression who was innocent and guilty just by looking at them. But as a matter of fact, Witness Chambers was a brilliant, he had a brilliant mind. He was very smart. He, his teachers and the faculty at Columbia University was there for two years, was so impressed with his intelligence and his writing ability too. He was a great writer. But he had this image that was not the same as his. Whitaker Chambers was born in 1901. He died early in 61. He grew up in Long Island. He went to Columbia for a couple of years. But when, one summer, he went to Europe on a student trip. 
and the economic chaos and moral corruption and the disruption and everything from post-World War I Europe affected him to such a degree that when he went back, he dropped out of Columbia and he joined the party in 1923 or 25, I guess it was 25, 1925. He was one of those people who didn't join as a result of the depression in the 30s, he joined in the 20s. And he immediately became a journalist. He wrote for the uh, Daily Worker and the New Masses, the two communist publications. So he was in the open party. At the time, the Communist Party did not want anyone being in the open party and doing underground work. It was very compartmentalized. So when they decided that he should run this underground cell in Washington, D.C., that his was part of, he had to quit his job as a journalist and go underground. And then when he finally um, had this debate with, with uh, Al Jahis over the spying, when they, they, they had to, you want me to get into the congressional hearings? Go for it. <laughs> the, I mean, that's the big dramatic moment. Right, the congressional place. hearings were taking place and... So this would have been roughly when then? This was in the 40s. They were investigating communist penetration into the U.S. government. And Whitaker Chambers' name kept surfacing when they were testifying, various people were testifying. So finally, they called Chambers. And this was a famous moment, August 1948. He acknowledged he was a communist. He acknowledged he ran an underground cell. And he said one of the members was... Alger Hiss, and it was like dropping a nuclear bomb because Hiss at this time was the fair-haired boy. His sponsors were people like Eleanor Roosevelt and Felix Frankfurter and, and Dean Acheson. They were all his people. And so that turned into a contest between the two of them that went from the congressional hearings to a libel case to a case before a jury and Hiss kept saying he didn't know Chambers by that, a man by that name, which was true. He knew Whitaker Chambers by his underground cover name, which was Carl. But finally, the, Whitaker Chambers had so much detail about Alger Hiss as a result of them working closely together that it became apparent they were close and he knew him well and that Hiss wasn't telling the truth. And of course, he finally was convicted. And then Chambers, for the next 10 well, the 10 years from 38 to 48, while his was working his way up in the State Department, Whitaker Chambers was working himself up in Time Magazine, working for Henry Luson, who became a senior editor of the magazine. That's what he was in 48. It's always seemed to me, that, and you touched on this briefly, but maybe if I could get you to expand a little bit, that there's almost a bit of a class component to this this clash, uh, this comparison between Hiss and Chambers, even though they actually came from you know roughly comparable social backgrounds yeah. originally, mm -hmm. uh, that they, they they probably appeared quite differently. And and just want to talk about that a, a little bit. I know Hiss is somebody, and I forget if this was in your book or in uh, Susan Jacoby's book, but but who liked to make a great deal out of you know the, that he'd been to Harvard. I think he once made some snarky comment to Richard Nixon about, I'm a Harvard man, what was your school? Oh yes, right. you're you know, Whittier. Yeah. Uh, he was very arrogant about a background that he developed and pursued, not that he came from. Uh, he developed this persona. 
the, the class difference was not really, as you say, accurate because both came from a middle class family. However, Aldrich wound up in the class of the Upper Eastern Establishment. Chambers was claiming, as people he knows, uh, a prostitute from New Orleans called Von Eye Annie. He didn't have any people on, on, his, on his team. However, that was in the 40s, but in 1952, after he wrote Witness, and as a, a conservative movement was emerging as a result of William F. Buckley starting National Review, he became you know, the hero for the conservative movement, and they all supported him. But before that, it, it was the people who supported his that made you think it was there was a class distinction. As I said before, two Supreme Court justices, a first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, he had support of the major uh, media types, Walter Lippmann, Joe Alsop, All the big names at the time. The big names, yeah. And and I this is also a, a time I think where you know journalists were still it, journalism was not a high class profession in public perception. I mean the public perception was that journalists were fairly sleazy individuals who hung around at the bars near the train station. Uh, <laughs> with that, I, I think probably perhaps Whitaker Chambers may have suffered a little bit in in the public perception from from that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Alger Hiss had some interesting comments later in life about communism and, and how, it would, how it would be to live under a communist regime. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his thoughts on that, his thoughts on like whether or not he'd want to live in the Soviet Union, for instance? Yes, I was very fortunate while I was writing this that uh, Tony Hiss turned over all of his father's personal correspondence and papers, everything, over to the archives at NYU, the Taminet Library. And none of that had been mined in a previous book on his, so I was like there first. And I sat there for hours reading all these personal letters from his to his wife, his son, in the 30s when he was in prison. I also found this wonderful document that he was, that he was uh, giving an interview with Colum at Columbia University in 1975, much later. It was over a 200-page document. And he was discussing all, all sorts of political issues. But that at the very end, they asked him, you know, what was his take on communism? And he's talking about this in 1975. And it was some intriguing comments he made. He said, well, for myself, I would not want to live in a communist system because of, of the lack of freedoms to travel, write, think, read whatever you want. And he acknowledged this. Of course, you know, he's not a communist, right? So he's saying this. But then he said, for the people who were in the system, he thought it improved their lives. It mitigated the hardships that they had. And he specifically mentioned Russia, China, Cuba, that their life was much better than it had been under the czars in previous times. So the people who were trapped in it, he thought that was great for them, but it wasn't good for him. He also made an interesting point that, you know, he, he was talking about how many people were killed. He denied that it was millions. He think, thinks the numbers weren't that many. A lot of people left China, so it probably wasn't that many. He tried to justify it by numbers. And then he said, you know, well, the means justifies the ends. He said that in a different way, but that's what he was saying. 
that the important way to look at a revolution is not necessarily about looking at what's happening at the time to the people, but what its ultimate goals are. So this was fascinating stuff because no one ever was able to get into his head to find that stuff out, and this was in his own words. Yeah, he seems to have been a man who sort of held his own views and his own opinions and his own emotions mm -hmm. pretty closely. Right. I th my understanding is his autobiography, which I'll admit I have not read, but I'm told is fairly unforthcoming about his inner life. Right. Well, he has a few things in there, too, but it, it is fairly... It's it, pretty straightforward. He doesn't discuss his thoughts or ideas that much. Just a couple more uh, questions, and, and then we'll go to the audience, because I'm, I'm sure there's a, a lot of folks out there who want to get in on this. But you started out your introduction in the book by asking, why do we need another book about Hess? So, and he has been extensively written about. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's, what's your answer to that? Why, why, why do we need this book? Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote the book because I've always been interested in the subject, counterintelligence, espionage, and of course, this is one of the most famous cases, if not the most after the Rosenbergs. And it's, it's just a fascinating saga because you're dealing with two men who were on opposing sides with different worldviews, interesting people, brilliant people. The story is fascinating just in and by itself. Then I started thinking, you know, most of the books on his, there have been a lot written, do I want to write a book? Most of them focus on the case. Who is telling the truth during the trials and during the congressional hearings? I thought it was much more than that. I saw it as a, a very a strategic view and perspective. What mattered was ideology. That's what his was about. That's what drove his thinking. That's what drove his behavior. These two opposing worldviews between collectivism and individualism are so clearly uh, seen in the struggle between these two men. This is almost a titanic struggle between the two. So I thought it was important to put the story in the context of ideology. I also thought it was important to tell more about his significant role in foreign policy, especially at Yalta and the founding of the UN. And as I said just now, having the, um, his personal papers from the NYU archives, which showed a very humanistic style, a style, side of his, his sweetness almost, as Whitaker Chambers acknowledged, he was a very sweet man. His concern and love for his wife, and especially Tony, his son, all of this comes through in his correspondence. You see this very human side of the man, which didn't necessarily come through in other books. And finally, most importantly, the KGB archives and Hungarian archives were available to, to pretty much put the nail, final nail in the coffin. I mean, especially the KGB archives where his is cited not only by his script and covenant, but in clear text, Alger Hiss, in the archives. And this material is all online. You can get it. Vasiliev was the Russian who brought it out and gave it to the uh, Smithsonian and Capri. And it's all online. It's fascinating material. Yeah, I think it's online with the Cold War International History Project, if right, I recall exactly. correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, so last question from me before we go to the audience then. Uh, and, and this sort of ties together what you've been saying with what Peter's been saying. Why has the, the question of Hiss's guilt or innocence been for, for so many decades now, uh, finally fading, I think, but for so many decades, why was it a, a litmus test of Americans' you know, political views 
why did this seize our imagination and why why do we care in such a, as a society in such a visceral way about Alger Hiss? It's not like he was the only person who spied for the Soviets, and it's not like he was the only spy for the Soviets who denied that he'd done it. So why did this well, catch on? He was a major figure, and he was one of the few denied it to his deathbed. But it, it was because they represented such clear, distinct worldviews. And the left, to the left, he was an icon. He was a symbol. They were more concerned about his collectivist views than the fact that he committed treason. That wasn't their concern. They would never throw a dark, they would never go against his because to them it was like a shadow over the New Deal and FDR and Yalta. So his got their support. That was even, you know, his defense supporting, not supporting me is throwing a dark cast on all these other things that were important in history. And he became a symbol for the left. And these two camps, opposing camps, was no middle ground formed in the 40s and have continued to this day, although his supporters have decreased immensely, as, especially as the KGB archives show that he was, in fact, a spy. There were very few people left. But even in the 50s, a lot of people began to disown him. Uh, Moynihan did. Uh, Schlesinger did, a lot of people on the left, I mean. I.F. Stone, uh, there's quite a few of them that decided he wasn't telling the truth, he was a spy. And the people on the right, for the same reason, thought Chambers represented the truth and a, cons and a conservative view of life and were opposed to collectivism and socialism. So it, it just set it, it set up what's going on today in the United States, as a matter of fact. We're going through the same thing as a result of the economic crisis today that they went through in the 1930s. You have people thinking that the government should be more involved, should do more, and you have people who say it comes at the cost of individual freedom and liberty. Where do you draw the line? And in this country for 200 years, we pretty much were able to draw a line between these two opposing views. But during the Depression and today, because of the economic downturn, it's more difficult. People are beginning, the national dialogue today, what it was in the 30s, they're questioning what is the legitimate extent of the uh, power of the federal government. Okay, well, I'm sure we've got several questions here. If you'll wait for the microphone to get to you because we're recording this, we'll start with a gentleman in the middle there. Wonderful presentation. You've not mentioned uh, Richard Nixon and the Woodstock because people who disliked Nixon thought that, that not, he, not only was it uh, Whitaker Chambers, but Nixon was the adversary, and Nixon, without the Hiss case, would never have been tapped as vice president, so it launched his career, and... I never understood why the Woodstock typewriter wasn't discarded because if the government got a hold of it, then it was really a smoking gun. Well, the reason why I didn't focus on Nixon is I didn't want to get involved in the politics of the 50s, McCarthyism and Nixon. I was talking about the ideological aspects, which puts Chambers up front in the picture. Of course, everyone might, I don't know if everyone knows, Richard Nixon was the junior congressman from California on this congressional committee, and he was the one convinced 
that Hist was lying about knowing Chambers, so he was the one pushing the case forward. And as a result of that, the left became very anti-Nixon, and eventually they did win that battle. <laughs> but um, Well, Nixon helped a little. Yeah, right. Well, no, but they went over, they went after him seriously because I think they had this feeling of what he did to his. They always kept that feeling about what he did to Nick or what he did to his. But, and McCarthy too with the witch hunts in, in the 30s and 40s, I thought Christopher Hitchens made a wonderful statement. I put it in my book. He said, if his was wrong, then Nixon and McCarthy were right, and that could not be. So that kind of sums it up. Any thoughts on, just quickly, on the Woodstock typewriter? I don't want to get too far down into the rat hole of, the, of this case, but any, any mean, thoughts on the Woodstock? When you hear, I'm not talking about pumpkin papers and typewriters here. I know those are the typical symbols of this story. But the, the thing about the typewriter was there were all kinds of contentions, whether it was the original one or the, the FBI put in a phony one, this and that. But as Murphy, who was the prosecutor, said, you know, the point is that the papers that were typed from the classified material had the same font as the papers that Priscilla Hiss used in her papers. So. It could have been any typewriter. The font was the same of her personal typewritten material and the State Department classified material that was typed. Uh, Peter, I think, has going to uh... Yeah, you had a chance to review the papers uh, that Tony had contributed. And I'm just wondering, is there any suggestion in there that Hiss dropped his guard either with his first wife, Priscilla, or that any of them said anything that he revealed more than what do you, you think wanted I the public to know. <laughs> what do you think I was looking for? <laughs> and I'm just wondering if you found anything. I found two things. One is the files, you know, the folders go from 19, uh, maybe 29 to 30. They married in 29. And each folder is by year. There's a missing folder. And it was the two years he was associated with Whitaker Chambers. So apparently this inveterate letter writer didn't write any letters for two years while he was in Whitaker Chambers' um, uh, network. The other thing I found was about Priscilla Hiss, his first wife. She had denied during the trials that she was a socialist, a member of the Socialist Party, I should say. And they brought up all, you know, they had this information saying we have see you, you know, we have the, um, what do you call it? When the catalog showing members, her name was there. She denied it, she, you know, kept denying it all the way through. There was a letter written to her husband in March when she was in New York and he was working for a law firm in Boston for one year. He would commute to New York. And she was living near Columbia University with her brother and sister-in-law. And they, they were, she and her brother were members of the Socialist Party up in Morningside Heights, that chapter. And she was writing about how her chapter of the party was doing this and this and this. This is her handwriting, her letter, which absolutely flat out said her party the chapter she belonged to. 
with a lady here on the aisle. Wait, hold on, wait for the mic. <laughs> we're recording this. Um, given that chambers in this were more or less equivalent to what get into communism, um, can you speculate on what caused chambers to um, to break with it on the basis of evidence and hiss, sort of equally intelligent, astute person, um, to continue to have a blind spot? And, and I just have one comment. You keep on talking about communism and socialism as if they're the same thing, and there are like vast differences between the two. So that's just a comment. Well, I think most of the time I'm talking about communism. Until the very, until the very end, I use the word socialism in connection with the co collectivist worldview in terms of today. But Chambers and his both were committed communists, totally committed. Hiss never deviated. Chambers went to see Hiss uh, and told him why he was breaking with the party and gave him all the crimes of Stalin murdering millions of people, the Bolsheviks who made the revolution, starving the peasants in the Ukraine, the Nazi Soviet pact. He went on and on and on how, the, how they turned their back on the German communists, how they turned their back on the Spanish Republican group. And he, he said that Stalin's behavior, he behaved as a true communist, which showed the evil, the evilness of that system. So, I mean, a lot of people broke from the party because of these very things. But his was one that just had a blind spot. As I said, he saw only utopia. Uh, all the way in the back, Nick Reynolds. And then we have uh, someone up here who's been very patient. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, you, you can be next. Uh, I've got a double-barreled question about sources. I'm very interested to hear about Vasiliev's papers in the Library of Congress. Has anyone been able to go back further than his handwritten notes? I mean, what would happen if you wrote a letter to the SVR archivist and said, say, are you going to do a FOIA anytime soon? And maybe the answer to the question, I wonder, is you mentioned the Hungarian archives. I'd be intrigued to hear more about that. I don't know if anyone's going to pursue that more. This woman, Maria Schmidt, who is a Hungarian archivist, happened to come across the original uh, interrogation files of Noel Field when he was arrested by the Hungarians. And in that, he, this was in, in the 40s, Stalin had him arrested. He was using him as an excuse to purge and serve uh, leaders, and he claimed he was an American spy, which of course he wasn't, he was a communist. And Noel Fields admitted in this interrogation, which was taking place um, in the early 50s, he said that during the 1930s when he was in the U.S., he was at a dinner party and Al Jahis tried to recruit him for the GRU. And he told him, which was very bad tradecraft, you know, well, I'm already a member of a KGB network. <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> so he was a member of the network run by Hetty Massing. And this is an interesting point because Hetty Massing corroborated the story that was found in the Hungarian archives. Whitaker Chambers corroborated the story because his told him. And it was in KGB archives. So you have all these different sources from different people confirming that Hiss tried to recruit Noel Field into the GRU. 
in 1935, I think it was. The gentleman over here. Uh, if I could ask you to speculate about his, his thinking, do you think that at some point that he convinced himself that he hadn't done it? Or do you think that he got up every day for the last 50 years of his life saying, I'm going to lie again today? I've, I've dealt with both kinds of people. And I'm curious as to what you think he he was thinking. Now, there's an interesting question. Why he was on this campaign to no, no, vindicate no, himself? No, no, whether no. he whether he sincerely believed after a time that he had not spied, whether yeah. he convinced himself of his oh, own yes, lie. Oh, yes, I'm sure that's, my, this, that's pure this. speculation. I think he was a rare person committed to the very end that he was doing the right thing in terms of his perspective on the political life in this country. Hang on. Wait, wait. Try, try that again. Perhaps I, 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 I'm not being clear. Did he believe that I was never a communist? I never spied. The only way I knew Chambers was this, this dead No, I think he knew, he knew he knew Chambers. He knew he was a communist. But the word spying to him, once again, the blind spot, to him it was supporting a system. It wasn't treason against a system. It was doing it to support a system he believed in. So you think then, if I just to clarify this, you, you don't think that he uh, reimagined the facts of history? Like, he, you don't think that he wiped from his mind the fact that he had passed information, but rather he just simply morally sort of uh, believed the, the, the positive value of that, right. as opposed to the negative. Exactly. So it was not about facts, it was yeah. about the interpretation yeah. of the facts. Exactly. You think it was his mind. perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, the lady right here in the second row. Yes, if I understand the flyer, the handout said, finally, Hiss was convicted only of perjury. Well, does that mean then there was another trial, and I assumed he died of natural causes then in prison, but the Rosenbergs were executed, so what was different in his trial? Now, he, he, was, he was given a prison the statute of limitations had run out on espionage when he was convicted. So he was given a term of five years sentence for, for spying, for, for, I'm sorry, for perjury, because he lied about giving material to Hiss. And of course it was related to the espionage, but it was about perjury. So he was convicted for that. But because of good behavior, he got off in 44 months. But he lived, that was, he lived until 1996, 92 years old. He spent almost half a century saying he was innocent. He died of natural causes in New York at 90. So esp espionage, the federal government couldn't pursue the espionage question with him? Mm -hmm. No. no. Yeah, what's, do, just any quick comment on, on sort of the distinction between Rosenberg and, and uh, the Rosenbergs, rather, and, and his? That's the other big case in, you know, espionage right. case from that general period in, in American culture. Well, the Rosenbergs were ordinary people. They didn't, they weren't part of the elite like his was. He had high-powered support. I mean, Dean Acheson, Eleanor Roosevelt. The Rosenbergs were your run-of-the-mill communists. However, they were involved in passing 
information on the Manhattan Project. And I think that's what made it more, you know, a lot of people say, well, what did Hiss do? So what? He influenced policy. To them, it wasn't as bad, to many people. But also, the thing about the Rosenbergs, the, the distraction there is everybody realized he was guilty. It was his wife. That became the problem. She was unfairly executed. So that's a different twist on that story. I mean, she might have been involved to some extent. It's not clear. But I think, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that it was the judge or maybe the prosecutor who were trying to get them to confess that they claimed they were going to execute them both. It was be, They were using that, I believe. I don't know if someone would shed light on that. OK. Uh, just briefly. Ethel was put out as bait in the hope that he would confess. Right. He never did, and therefore she essentially was executed for his recalcitrance to confess. Right. The gentleman two rows behind there. I think it's one row behind. Yes, I'm sorry. I miscounted. Yeah, thanks. Hi, Christina. Really Hi. terrific presentation. Um, I, I don't know as much as I would like to about uh, what Elger Hiss's job was uh, in the spring of 1945 at San Francisco when the uh, UN Charter was being crafted. So I wonder if you could tell me about that. And specifically, has there ever been some suggestion that there he was, in fact, spying for the Soviets and trying to, I don't know, somehow craft the UN Charter to our detriment and their benefit? The UN uh, issue came up during Yalta. And this was an interesting sidebar to the whole Yalta story because his was in favor of everything that was coinciding with the Soviet position. With the exception of the UN, Stalin wanted 13, uh, 15 seats at the UN, one for each republic, even though they weren't sovereign countries. The US position was, especially Roosevelt and his, no, you get one seat. And then they went from 16, down to three, and then they agreed that they would only take two extra seats, uh, Belarus and Ukraine. So they wound up with a total of three. But Hiss was the, in the forefront of opposing this. And my speculation on that, because it's an anomaly, it's different from everything else, was that Stalin was getting everything he wanted at Yalta, most importantly, the Polish borders and total control of all Eastern Europe and territory in Asia. He was getting everything he wanted. Some hypothetical organization that was not even founded yet, whether he got two or three seats, I, don't, I think that was a, a distraction. So it wasn't that important. And that's why his made it seem as though, no, you only get one seat. I, don't, I think controlling Eastern Europe was more important than whether you got one or three seats. Other questions? Uh, right up here in the front row. Sorry to make you, make you run there. The lady right here. Hello. You mentioned Tony as a son. Yes. Did his uh, have other children? Uh, no, he had a stepson. When he married Priscilla, his first wife, was, they were very devoted for 30 years. They, were, they became radicalized together. She had been married before to a guy named Hobson, and they had a son, Timothy, who's, by the way, alive today in his 80s in California. He's a retired doctor. 
And of course, he's always been pro-his. Then when she uh, married Alger, they had one son much later in 1941, Tony Hiss, it was their only child. He's still alive, he lives in Greenwich Village, he's about 70 years old now. He went to Harvard, he was a writer for New York Magazine, he wrote for um, um, one of the sections, I can't remember. What's that? Uh, around the Town or some name yeah, like that, I don't remember. Talk of the Town. Talk of the Town. Talk of the Town, he was a writer for that. And he lives, when Alger and Priscilla left Washington and moved back to New York, to, he was gonna work for the Carnegie Institute after he left State Department. They rented this small apartment in the village. And then the family still lived there when he was in prison, when he got out of prison, after he and Priscilla split up because she wanted to run away and have new names and start a new life. And he said, no, I'm gonna vindicate my name. So they broke up. And he, she didn't want to divorce him, she wouldn't. So he was living with another woman called Isabel for years and years and years, and they finally married when Priscilla died. Um, Tony still lives in the same apartment with his wife and son that they moved into in 1946. <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I. I I don't have a lot of sympathy for Alger Hiss, but I do have a great deal of sympathy for Tony. That's gotta be a difficult situation growing up uh, as the son of somebody like Alger Hiss. Yeah, he had an interesting comment in his book. He said um, he ha that Alger Hiss had three faces. The fa first face was this lovely, warm human being, affectionate person that he knew as a father. And this was the same face that you see in the letters and that Whitaker Chamber talked about. And then he said, the second face of my father was this very neutral, kind of uh, removed, loyally position, you know. And he said, the third face, I don't agree with. That's the dark side, and that's what Whitaker Chambers sees, the face of a spy. So that's how he characterized it. I think we've got maybe two more questions. The gentleman here, and then after that, the lady on the aisle. Hi, what was your take on the wives? Were they sympathetic to the Communist Party movement? Or sometimes that gets discussed in literature, sometimes The not. two wives? Yes. Uh, yeah, Priscilla was, in fact, according to Whitaker Chambers, she was more of a committed communist than her husband. It's not clear who exactly uh, recruited his or if he recruited himself. There's, you can't find any evidence to show Priscilla was the one who recruited, but they kind of were in tandem became radicalized during the 30s. She was a committed socialist. Um, Isabel, he doesn't talk about much. She was a beautiful woman, a model. Um, she worked for various health magazines. The only connection in her biography is with the left is that she was married previously to one of the producers in Hollywood that were on the 10, the Black 10, you know, whatever that list was. The, black, the Hollywood Blacklist. The Hollywood 10. One of those was her husband. All right, last question right here. Further to this gentleman's question, I was gonna ask whether there, did, did the government have evidence that Priscilla helped him do it? Did they just steer clear of her? Do you know whether she helped type with classified papers and so forth? Well, 
that was the charge since he had to type the papers. He would, he would bring them home at night and either Whitaker Chambers would run them to Baltimore and have his person uh, copy them or she would type them in her home. He didn't type, I believe. I don't think what Alger has typed. It's her typewriter. She did the typing. But she claimed, you know, all of this was not true. She wasn't involved. She didn't type anything. But there was no way to prove who sat at the table at night and typed classified material. So she was, therefore, there was just not even the beginnings of a perjury case against her. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Christina Shelton for a fascinating talk. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.